Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Today, we're coming to you from the Bitcoin Commons in Austin, Texas, which are in the headquarters of Unchained Capital. I'm on a visit here and they graciously allowed me to film uh, from their studios. Our guest today is Darren Feinstein, who lives in Austin, Texas, but unfortunately is not here today. Uh, so he's joining us remotely. And Darren is the founder and chairman of uh, Core Scientific, probably the largest Bitcoin miner in the world. They make about 30 to 40 Bitcoins a day, roughly, uh, currently speaking. They announced their daily Bitcoin mine. Darren has been mining Bitcoin for 10 years. So think back to whatever it is that you were doing in 2012. Uh, what happened in your life in 2012? That was all the wrong answer. You shouldn't have been doing that. You should have been mining Bitcoin in 2012 like Darren. 
Uh, Darren is what happened. It is the alternative universe version of you that mined Bitcoin in 2012 while you were doing other uh, inconsequential nonsense <laughs> in comparison. Uh, Darren's been in the Bitcoin mining business for 10 years now, so he's got a lot uh, to talk about in uh, that business. And Darren's also a good friend of mine. And I am, uh, for full disclosure, I am also an advisor for Core Scientific. Um, and I have a small uh, stock allocation in them. So, Darren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Honor to be here. Good to see you. I, I, as you said, I, I, I do live in, in Austin, and I'm not there. I'm in, I'm in Vegas right now at uh, my Nevada house. But I'd rather be there. I'm, I'm really upset that I'm going to miss this out in person. But it's good that we're doing it. It's good to see you. Uh, I do appreciate uh, spending some time with you. Likewise, and it was great seeing you in Miami. Tell us, tell us a little bit first about how you got started in Bitcoin mining. Why Bitcoin mining in 2012? I mean, didn't you know that it was a Ponzi back then? <laughs> I mean, listen, that was my initial reaction. I think, I think most people that come from a similar background that I come from initially go to, this sounds like a scam, just because most things are scams. Uh, my background was I was an accountant. I mean, that's how I look at the world through the lens of an accountant. And I started a boutique investment banking company. Uh, I was a lawyer in the middle of that, uh, sandwiched in there a little bit. And uh, as an accountant and as an as a owner of businesses, I look at lots of different deals uh, through a long story, uh, through a circle of events. I ended up looking at Bitcoin technology in 2011. And <clears throat> my reaction, as I just said, it was very similar to what I, what I assume most people go through as they, they scratch the surface of this technology. And then, and let me get rid of my phone. It, they scratch the surface of the technology and then they end up going down the proverbial rabbit hole into exploring what exactly this technology is. But the first uh, time I heard about Bitcoin, I looked it up. And when I looked it up on Google, it, it, the first articles were all about how people were using it to buy drugs on the internet. And then the, the next articles uh, made me, made me compare it to digital video game money that transferred around to try to conceal people's identity on some kind of centralized network. And so I, I avoided it uh, as a lawyer and I have uh, several privilege licenses um, in different States. I have to be careful about what technology I get involved in. And, and I avoided it until I read an article because I was cognizant of what Bitcoin was. I, I mean, had I not looked at it briefly, I would never have read this article that, that alluded to the fact that the Bitcoin network is an immutable record of transactions. And as an accountant, I really pay attention to things that as, as a transaction ledger. Um, most, and, and I always try to figure out how to explain this to people, and I'm not doing this to you because me and you have had this conversation a dozen times already. Uh, but for the listeners, it's hard to explain exactly how important the accounting ledgers are for everything that transpires, not just on a economic basis, but on a global basis, on a data and information basis, because through the history of humanity, the records get changed by those in control of the records. Whoever controls the records, they change the records. And 
if you don't have the ability to audit those records, those records stand forever. And that becomes the new truth. And so you end up with, you end up with this system. And, and sometimes I call it the operating system of the world. The world has to run on something. Everything in the world has to be recorded on a ledger or doesn't exist. That includes the money you have in a bank. That includes the title to your house or your automobile. That includes the, the items that are in the supermarket. There's no way for the people that are running businesses, corporations, the government banks, you to really have a record of everything that you have or own. And so the, the ledgers are, are massively important and the ledgers have been corruptible since the beginning of ledger keeping, which would be tens of thousands of years ago. And so if you look back on the history of accounting in the world, which are the ledgers that, are, that, run, the, that run everything, without the ledgers, right, as we just said, as I just said, you have nothing. And so the history of ledgers is really, really simple, uh, shockingly so. You would think something that runs the entirety of the world would have much more complication, but it doesn't. There's only been two innovations before Bitcoin on ledger technology globally. 10,000 years ago, Saif went to a market, you know, with me. And we went to a market, we bought five sheep. And Saif got a clay tablet and he wrote down on his clay tablet, I have five sheep. And then Saif went home and sold two sheep and bought five more sheep. And at the end of 18 months, Saif could look at his ledger and know how many sheep he has. That ledger is the birth of single entry accounting. Syke knows how many sheep he has that he bought at the market in 18 months and 24 months and 36 months. I do too, because I'm keeping a record also. And that's how, that's how humans kept records for tens of thousands of years up until the 13 or 1400s when somebody decided to innovate that. A lot of people take credit for who innovated accounting to double entry accounting, but accounting was innovated in the 13 or 1400s to double entry. Instead of, I have five sheep and I mark it on a clay tablet and I bake it in the sun so other humans can't change the records, I now record a second input. I have five sheep, I paid $5. And so on this record, on your ledger, you now have a debit and a credit. And then you add those up over some period of time and you get every single financial record that exists today. If you look at any bank, government, corporation, publicly traded company, all of the information that they report is double entry accounting that was invented in the 13 or 1400. So we're looking at 700 year old technology running everything on the planet. Every ledger is using an analog antiquated technology from the 1400s. And so what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, it's the legacy stakeholders that control the books and records. So whoever controls the books and records, and this is the most important part, they can alter the books and records. So you see what happens as a result of those in charge of the books and records, changing the books and records multiple times every decade in massive uh, fraud and devastating uh, fraud events. Uh, the fraud that occurs using double entry accounting has been pervasive for the last 700 years because whoever controls the books and records, they get to change the books and records. 
And the people that control the books and records, they're pretty smart. And if they commit a fraud, the only way for somebody to figure out if there was a fraud would be to audit the books and records. Well, the auditors, they don't make as much money as the as, as the, the things they audit. Yeah, as the guys that are stealing all the money. So the auditors are usually not as smart as the, as the criminals adjusting the books and records. And so it's very hard to find out when people are committing crimes from not just auditing the records because the people committing crimes are pretty smart people. And that's why you see these examples in governments and businesses and banks and all types of uh, industry where the fraud lasts decades. It takes decades to, to uproot the fraud. And it's usually a result of they finally run out of money. Once they run out of money, everyone's like, oh, wow, this was going on for the last 30 years. And you're like, yeah, it was because that guy controlled the books and records, which is a really bad technology. And so the question becomes, if accounting runs the world, if ledgers run everything, and everything you do in your life depends on the ledgers being accurate, how come they haven't been upgraded in 700 years? And the answer to that is very unfortunate in that nobody's incentivized to fix it. <laughs> They're not incentivized because no bank or government or corporation wants to change a system that allows them to change everything. They can change anything anytime they want. It's really difficult to find out if they change it. And so we've had double entry accounting as our operating system for the world and the operating system, the rails that every single business corporation and bank runs on. And that's, and that's existed for 700 years. And eventually, at some point in time, a group of people or one person uh, decided over you know, multiple years to, to change that. And I think if you look back at what the Bitcoin network is, it looks like it's lots of uh, very smart people over 40 years creating different uh, important uh, innovations to accounting and then the pseudonymous Satoshi, and I'm not a computer expert, but if I had to, uh, my macro view is he put together lots of people's work that was very important to the space. Uh, and, and he came up with this proof of work innovation, which allowed transactions to become immutable on a record. So you have a ledger now that becomes immutable. So you have this single entry accounting single entry, uh, journal entry accounting tens of thousands of years, years ago. You have double entry accounting in the 13 or 1400s. And then in 2008, we have the new innovation, which is double entry accounting. So you have the debits and the credits, and then you have a system self-audit, which is the proof of work innovation. And that system self-audit audits every transaction to its inception. Once the, once the transaction is audited to its inception, it's written, and Satoshi uses the word time chain, which I like better. It's written to the time chain. So there's a time chain of every transaction. Uh, there's, there's a chain of time transactions, and then there's a chain of transactions. And once they're written to the time chain, they're immutable. They can never be changed. They can be a pet. You can add to them, but you can't go back in time and change any of the past transactions. What that means is, and the proof of work consensus mechanism on how that happens. The important part of it is that it doesn't happen by any stakeholders. 
which is what the legacy systems were. They were all run by the stakeholders uh, approving the, the consensus mechanisms. What this used was energy, servers, and nodes. And so the servers and nodes without human trust risk were the consensus mechanism for auditing the transactions and then writing them to the time chain, which is the triple entry accounting. So you get the time chain or people call it the blockchain. The blockchain becomes the triple entry. So you have transaction between two parties, single double entry accounting written to the blockchain time chain up top. That new input is a triple entry accounting ledger through an immutable proof of work network, which is the only innovation that's, that's happened in accounting in the last 700 years. And so once it's written to that, you have, you have, you have unquestionable truth on chain. There are no ledgers that have ever existed in humanity where the records on the chain are self-audited by the network and 100% trustworthy. You have no human trust risk. So all of a sudden you have this new accounting technology that's 100% accurate. And so what that does is that changes the world. That changes everything. And so 2011, 12, when I started really thinking about this stuff, uh, you really start thinking about what changes if you have an immutable record. And he answers everything. And the first one that changes that we all talk about the most is money, money changes. And so you have Bitcoin network, which is capital B, the Bitcoin network, which is this accounting innovation, which are the rails of, of what the technology is. And then you have Bitcoin, lowercase b, the commodity digital asset that lives on this network. And Bitcoin is the most important and best monetary technology that's ever been invented because it lives on the best accounting technology that's ever been invented. If the Bitcoin lived on a different network that didn't have this proof of work consensus mechanism with the immutable record, it wouldn't be the most important monetary technology ever created, whatever lived on this Bitcoin network would be. And so because you get them together, Bitcoin is the most important uh, innovation in money in the history of humanity. And now you have the best money and you have the best accounting technology. Well, what else can you do with that? It's endless. And so how much people, how much time you spend understanding that this is just a brand new accounting technology that changes how all records on the planet will be kept and the money that lives on it is the best money that's ever existed. You can't change the books and records. You can't increase the number of them. You have no bearer, you know, you have no counterparty risk, you have no transfer risk, you have no credit risk. The Bitcoins just exist on this network and no one can seize them. No one can confiscate them. The network is independent. And the reason that is, is the proof of work consensus mechanism, which in order to hack, which is the most important part of the security of the network, you would have to hack all the nodes that contain the entirety of the Bitcoin network, which at the same time, which is impossibility. And that's why no one's been able to hack it. And so when you can't hack this network, not only do you have the first innovation in accounting and the first innovation in monetary importance, when you can't hack the network, what happens? Well, nobody can take 
your Bitcoins if you have them on your self-custodian wallet because the hackers can't hack it and the government can't hack it. And so nobody can take your Bitcoin on your self-custodian wallet. And the ramifications for that is a whole different discussion in terms of private property because uh, over 50% of the population on the planet Earth live in autocratic authoritarian regimes. They don't have private property. And another 20 to 30%, according to Alex Gladstein, who I love his statistics, live in double or triple digit inflation economies. So you have somewhere between 80 and 90% of the, of the global population, 7 billion people. They, they, they live without private property and in fear that their money will be debased and go to zero. And so if they have a digital asset on a wallet, then they have private property and they have the store of value which also gives them banking, which is, which is a whole different problem. So I kind of went through that pretty quickly. Uh, the, the innovation is this massively important accounting technology change that eventually all products will live on this. All derivative financial products will live on it because there'll be a better record of it. Okay, so I think this is really fascinating. So the way that I present the innovation of Bitcoin, I focus on the monetary uh, side. And so for me, this accounting side of it the way that bitcoin works is the part that's behind the curtain the under the hood stuff that is you know all of these gears uh need to turn in order for us to get a money whose supply can't be increased easily in order for us to get a money that can't be inflated and for me when i think about the implications of bitcoin and i think about the um, positive things that bitcoin can do for the world I'm thinking of, all right, what happens if this thing works, you know, if the gears turn properly under the hood, and then we get a fixed supply money, and then how does the world adjust to that? But what you're saying is um, is, is, is a different point, which is on top of all of the money stuff, the, the way that the accounting itself functions, the way that Bitcoin um, registers the transactions is an innovation in accounting in its own right. It's an innovation in the science of accounting as it has evolved over the years. So how is this an innovation distinct from the fact that it makes Bitcoin work? So you've you've explained very eloquently why it is so different. And so initially we had single entry accounting, then we had double entry accounting, so credits and debits. Now we're introducing a third entry. How useful is having this third entry for um, for an individual or for a business? What is exactly the... Um, operational benefit of it. They, they change every business that exists on the planet because most of the people that are in compliance or audit are, check, are tracking and checking every one of those records all day long. They're reconciling. There's a whole recon, Every business has a reconciliation department. All they do is make sure that what the transactions say they were, they are. Then, the, then it goes to audit. And the audit people track the reconciliation people and the people at the restaurant. Well, the Bitcoin network does this internally every 10 minutes. It self-audits every transaction. So guess who's not needed to verify a transaction on the Bitcoin network? Humans that conduct reconciliation of transactions or humans that conduct audits. They're unnecessary. And so if, if your business model depends on the fact that there are humans conducting transactions that they can commit fraud on, which are lots and lots of people, you're not needed anymore to audit this network if this network takes off the way that it has. 
And so there's a lot of people that are been in various industries, including audit, accounting, taxation, reconciliation, that, that they see that they're not, they're not needed to do the same work to track these transactions. But more importantly, what, besides the fact that, I mean, I think they're all important. So also important, also important. So you have this, you have this unalterable record forever on this chain. Now, what other problems does that solve? Well, one of the, one of the longest standing problems, Saif, in terms of transactions between two parties, and you know this part, that the, there's, there's never been an ability of humans to conduct a peer-to-peer transaction over geographic space without a third-party verification system. And what that means is, and Nick, this is the Byzantine general problem. Uh, I've altered it. I think this is simpler to explain the Byzantine general problem this way. If, if you care to, there's books that are thousands of pages long that, that go into the Byzantine general problem. That Let's go back in time, thousand years ago. Seif and I don't know each other. Uh, we're not friends a thousand years ago. We don't, we don't know anything about each other except that we both have something of value that the other wants. I'm in Asia and Seif is in Europe. If we make a deal and Seif has to send me something of value and I don't get it. He says he sent it and I don't get it. I don't believe that he sent it. I don't believe that he sent it. And so that, that, what that means is I believe that Seif is a bad actor. He did not send me the value because I didn't get it. Now, Seif sent it. Seif was an honorable person. He sent me the value. And now I'm saying I didn't get it. Well, now Seif thinks I'm a bad actor, that I got it. And I'm saying I didn't get it, so I don't have to send him the value that I was going to send him. And so what that means is over time and space, geographic space, there's no way for two humans to conduct a transaction with each other. And so how did humans conduct transactions over thousands of years? The way they did it was a third party popped up. The third party called themselves the transaction verification party. And so Seif would send his value to the third party. I would send my value to the third party. And the third party would say, Sife sent value, check. Darren sent value, check. Transaction culminated. And so that third party transaction facility or verification system, that was necessary to conduct transactions since the beginning of human history up until 2008. You could never trust another person to accurately tell you if they received the value or not. So you needed a third-party verification system. Well, what did those third-party verification systems turn into? The, the systems that approve the transactions between two parties. They turned into banks. So the banks, the bank's very first product offering line was a verification system between two parties on a confirmation of a transaction and they would charge a fee. And so banks popped up all over. People would send them value. They would 
they would record the transactions and charge a fee. The next line of banks was this. Uh, Sipes sent a million dollars to the bank. They confirmed that he sent it. They confirmed my value was there. And now that transaction just culminated. And the bank says to me, we're going to send you a million dollars you know, to your hut. And I said, no, why don't you guys just custodian it? And so the custodianship of money became the bank's second product line, all predicated on its first product line, right? There is no custodianship of money necessary unless they're also confirming the transactions and then that money's at the bank. So you have banks pop up, they're confirming transactions between two parties and then they're custodian the money. That's what a bank does. That's what banks are globally. Everything else that a bank does has been legislatively prescriptive. It's fabricated. They've just come up with new product lines to utilize the the custodianship of money that they have. And so in America, the banks get to say, okay, we have a billion dollars in deposits in our bank and the Federal Reserve allows them and the banking regulatory agencies allow them to borrow nine times the amount of money they have on their books and lend it out. And so now the bank that has a billion dollars is lending out $9 billion and they're making interest on that, right? And they're borrowing the nine, the, the additional money from the Fed and they're paying really low interest rate and they're lending it out for a much higher interest rate and they're making spread minus what they lose. And so now that third product line, lending money out becomes the bank's largest revenue producer, Right. They're, they're just lending a massive amounts of money and they're trying to get all the deposits so they can lend out more money. Now, all of this is predicated on one thing, that Scythe and I can't do business with each other over geographic time and space because the transactions can occur outside of their third-party verification system. Now what happens? Well, Bitcoin happens. And so now two parties, me and Scythe, we can see each other's wallets publicly. Scythe can see that I have money in my wallet, the Bitcoin in my wallet. He can see, and I can see that I sent it to him. And it gets recorded immutably to a ledger. Well, guess what? Transaction culminated without a third party. Well, what does that disrupt? Everything that's been built in the world related to verifying transactions to a third party because we just had our first peer-to-peer transaction ever. So now that there's the ability to have a peer-to-peer transaction without a third-party verification system, the bank's first product line has a potential to get much smaller, which means the, the custodianship of money, which is their second product line, that gets smaller too. And then the amount of money they get to borrow and from the Fed and then lend out, that gets smaller also. And so this new network disrupts everything. It disrupts every single business, every single, uh, everything that, that was created allow humans to conduct business will change because they, we, just, we just changed not just the transaction ability between two parties, the first time you're allowed to have a peer-to-peer uh, transaction without a third-party verification system. It's also written to an immutable ledger, which has no on-chain fraud and has no ability to be hacked so that they can't rescind the transaction 
They can't seize the transaction. And you, you have private property and you have the ability to bank yourself. And so this is revolutionary technology. It changes everything. And, and when, you, when you realize that, it's it's kind of a eye-opening moment where you say, "Wow, this is this." You know, we're very fortunate to be here during this amazing new network and this new innovation. It's it's equivalent to how they democratized information with the internet. When the internet democratized information to everybody, this is going to democratize accounting, which is a very complicated subject to everybody. Accounting becomes much simpler. Because audits on chain happen digitally. The records are kept immutably. And transactions between two parties can occur without third-party verification systems. And so it's a disruptive technology. It disrupts everything. And the, the amazing part about it is it's distributed globally. The consensus mechanisms, the nodes and servers are distributed globally. So they live all over the, the earth. And if the countries could shut it down, uh, China would have shut it down. They don't like networks to live outside their central authority, right? They're an authoritarian regime. They don't like individuals within their borders to have freedom. They don't like them to have private property. And they banned it. They banned the technology multiple times. And, you know, if if banning Bitcoin worked, you'd only have to ban it one time, right? You ban it once and, and then it would be gone within your borders. But they it, But people realize and governments realize you can't shut the network down because it's distributed globally. It lives all over these hundreds of thousands of nodes and you have to hack the entire network simultaneously, which is impossible. So you have the first unhackable network. You have the first mutable chain. You have the first transaction, peer-to-peer transaction without a third-party verification system. You have the first innovation to accounting in 700 years. Uh, and anything that lives on these rails is going to be better technology than what's existed before. And so we're in the very beginning of this. And I think we're all in the same fight. We're just, you know, the legacy people don't want to change. And, and that's just, and that's not new to Bitcoin. Legacy people never want to change. Well, I, I think I talked too long. <laughs> no, not at all. So um, I'm not an accountant or a banker, but I am going to... Uh, push back a little bit against the idea that uh, these people are going to be obsoleted. I mean, again, uh, I don't know much about these fields, but it seems to me like, you know, having this third uh, entry, uh, having this immutable public record that anybody can uh, check and verify, it seems to me like it would, um, it would be useful for an accountant, but I'm not sure it replaces an accountant. So if I run a company, I still need a guy in charge of the accounts to go over them and make sure that, you know, the uh, steak restaurant did indeed sell this many steaks, that we did buy that many steaks uh, for our inventory, and this many were spoiled, and this many were sold, and this many um, were given away for free or whatever. And then, you know, you, you run the numbers on how many steaks went in and how many steaks went out and how much money came in and how much money came out, and that should all be matching. Having Bitcoin out there to verify uh, the accuracy of the transactions can help, you know, maybe in that you can check that your customers aren't doing fraud. Sorry, your, your workers aren't doing fraud. Um, let, me just, because- let, me, let me say this. You're 100% right. And maybe my analogy was bad. 
I, what I was trying to show was a, a micro system utilizing this new technology. I wasn't saying restaurants don't need accountants. I was saying, here's an example on if you used the Bitcoin network versus used a point of sale system. I don't think you're going you're gonna to put uh, sales of stakes on the Bitcoin network. I think you're going to have a system that lives on top of that. And maybe at some point it's written down. But the holy grail of all businesses is immutable record. Does the Bitcoin network work for every restaurant in America? No. And every entertainment company in America? Absolutely not. All of, but the people at the granular level on, you know, larger scale transactions or to audit what's on the Bitcoin network, those people are not needed. But yes, you're going to need financial service people to figure out SIFE's individual business records. And Darren's, I have several businesses outside of this that I have lots of financial people that are not going to go away. And there are, I have reconciliation people that, that I have an uh, entertainment company. All I do is they reconcile the tickets that we get with the tickets that the broker said they sold. And, and those people don't go away either. But the, the interesting part of this technology is how do we utilize it in every other industry. And I think we're nascent stage of that. We're figuring it out. Um, but on, a, on the most important transactions globally, this network changes how behavior will work over time. Yeah. So I'm going to have to have an awkward conversation with my accountant after I fired him earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't fight. You need your accountant. <laughs> well, should have waited till you explained that part before I uh, sent him. <laughs> oh well, um, but yeah, no, I think I agree with you. I think, um, yeah, I think I think these jobs will probably remain. Uh, th- they are needed, but uh, you're right. And this th- this drives me to one thing that I considered for a while, which is that given Bitcoin's scaling limitations, on-chain scaling limitations, and given that oh, the first. 10 years of Bitcoin's growth have been heavily centered around, well, maybe not the first 10, but the first couple of years were not KYC heavy. But then arguably 2013 to now, uh, the vast majority of Bitcoin growth has come from KYC sources. A majority of coins right now exist either on exchanges or on uh, basically one hop off of an exchange. And so they're relatively straightforward to track. Uh, so if you believe chain analysis, I believe they say they think they can identify something like 80 or 90% of Bitcoin's ownership um, just by following simple uh, steps. Because like it or not, uh, again, this isn't uh, me endorsing this, the reality is the vast majority of money that has come into Bitcoin over the last 10 years has come in uh, through KYC means. And like it or not, this ledger is public, it's trackable, it's immutable. And so we have a full full record of all the transactions from day one. We know exactly each coin, um, each Satoshi um, since its inception and how it's moved around. So you can track this by, and I wonder if what ends up happening is that we end up with uh, with many thousands of uh, essentially financial institutions that are dealing with Bitcoin. And they all have public balances and public accounts. 
in that uh, we end up in a world in which the vast majority of people say use the lightning nodes of uh, use lightning in order to transact, but the on-chain transactions are effectively something that is carried out only by uh, these large uh, financial institutions. They're the, the equivalent of central banks, but they're going to be far more decentralized. Instead of living in a world of 200 central banks, but practically really one actual central bank that is a full node, we'd have a world with, say, 10,000 uh, full nodes, 10,000 Bitcoin full nodes that open and close channels on Lightning. And these are uh, all in the public record in that everybody knows this, you know, this is Darren's bank, and you guys have 500 Bitcoins, and... Uh, these are your trans- These are all your addresses. These are all the coins that were received, all the coins that were paid, and so it becomes very straightforward for somebody who uh, deals with your bank, or somebody who deals with another bank, to do financial audits, um, basically with public information. Just look at the Bitcoin blockchain, and you see this bank has had this much payment come in from that bank, and it's uh, sold this many goods. So you could. Um, you could check if there's any shenanigans going on. You could check if they're uh, issuing any Bitcoin-backed uh, instruments that are not backed by Bitcoin. This stuff becomes easier and easier with this kind of uh, situation. So I'm wondering, what do you think? Like, Are we headed to this kind of world where uh, Bitcoin continues to operate safely and uh, securely, but everything on the main chain is auditable and identifiable? meaning linked to somebody's identity. Do you think we're headed there? Do you think there's something that stops that? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. I, 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 there, there's a lot to unpack there. The chain, so there's, there's positives and negatives about having a public chain of transactions. And the, the, the positive is, is that everything's trackable, everything's audited, and everybody, every party to the chain transactions, and even third parties that have, uh, that, that are not direct, directly associated with the transactions, they can audit every transaction. And so the public nature of the transaction list 
is a net positive to me because that allows us to have the first immutable record publicly available for everybody to see. And if you're a citizen of a government and the government has $50 billion of citizens' money, the only way for you to know truly how they spent that or where it went to it would be to have a public immutable ledger. And so far, this is the only public immutable ledger. So, you know, there's various sizes of businesses. Like, is a pizza place going to go on the Bitcoin network? No. But are large government transactions, are the citizens one day going to ask for them to be on a mutable record? I think maybe likely so. And so the public nature of the network is a, is a massive net positive that is going to result in the massive growth and adoption of the network. It also is a net positive on the conversations that we always hear on illicit activity because everybody says, oh, ransomware and oh, people are committing crimes on the Bitcoin network. And the answer to that is if you're going to commit a crime, this is the worst network in the history of humanity for you to commit a crime because your ill-gotten gains will be tracked forever. And if you off-chain them, the people at Chain Analysis, which are really, really very intelligent people, they will know and they will come find it. And that's what happened to these ransomware people. They, they off-loaded the, their Bitcoin to a centralized exchange and the you know, I'm guess, assuming it was chain analysis because it was in the U.S. and the FBI was there moments later and they seized the, the Bitcoin from the centralized exchange. So I think there's a lot of FUD that doesn't understand that a public ledger that's audited to its inception that tracks every asset on it everywhere is, is good for, for law enforcement. And so this is not a net negative on a illicit activity uh, scale, which also then has the other side is that if you want to commit a secret transaction, right, one that you want nobody to know about, this is not a good network for you to use because there are no secret transactions. They're all public. And so historically, what did people use when they wanted to commit crime? Cash, these cash, right? Because cash is untrackable. Tried and trusted by criminals worldwide. Yes. You know, $2 trillion a year of cash and other... Bitcoin can't compete. (laughs) No, not even close. I mean, all crypto can't compete. You know, like even all the other products that are out there can't compete with the amount of fraud going on in the legacy system. But the... So the, the FUD related to illicit activity... It's just wrong. You don't want to. You don't want to utilize this network to make crimes. Like this is a really, really bad network for you to use if you want to commit a crime. Uh, if you want to be able to publicly audit truth, this is a good network. This is a good network because you can publicly audit truth. If you want to commit, uh, if you want to, if you want to partake in a transaction peer to peer over geographic space with somebody you don't know and avoid a third-party verification system, which have become unwieldy, this is a really good network to use because this 
This will allow you to conduct a transaction between over borders with another human that uh, you guys can both watch on chain the transaction culminate. And so this is a very good network for that transaction. If you wanted that transaction to be secret and nobody ever to see it and have it and it's part of some type of illicit activity, uh, then you don't want to use this network. So, yeah. you know, I think that the trackability and the auditability and the openness of the transaction logs, right? You can type in any address and, or any transaction and see the address or the transaction um, is a net positive to the world. And then people will build on top of this. You, you know, the Lightning Network's amazing. Um, they're, they're, they're building amazing products on top of that. Those are centralized networks that will have, they, you know, they'll have higher speeds. They'll be able to do more transactions. And then eventually when they write down to the main chain, uh, it'll become immutable. And that system and that network will get much more complicated and much more effective and efficient over the next decade. And so this, this new accounting platform is just being realized. The last, the last network lasted 700 years and this one's disrupting it. And all the products and all of the, the variety of ways that this will be utilized, uh, I think we're gonna be surprised at what humans innovate around this network. I, I don't think we've, we, we could even guess what it's going to look like in five, 10, 20 years. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, on, and on, so on the, on the issue of crime in, in the Bitcoin standard, I wrote something which I think, um, I, I still stand by and I think it's held up pretty well, which is that Bitcoin might be useful for victimless crimes, but it's an entirely terrible idea to be used for uh, victim, for victimful crimes. If your crime has a victim, you know, if you're going to take somebody's money, if you're going to have somebody who's going to be missing their money, they're going to be looking out for you. They're going to come after you. And if the crime is on the ledger, you know, the, the, you've taken the money and you've sent it from one Bitcoin address to the other, it's looking increasingly difficult uh, that you could just, you know, magically um, erase the ability of people to track you down. I think... Over the last year, we saw a couple of high-profile cases with people who were tr tracked down, and 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 it's just um, it's just the nature of Bitcoin. Like, all right, you can new introduce those mixers, but it's looking like you know, with every mixer introduced, you're counting on the fact that you've reduced the chance of identifying you, but you're going in with another set of people, and um, if they get identified, that doesn't put you in the clear. In fact, it might be making you. Uh, take more risks because you think you've been anonymized because you've put it in a mixer. and But then if the rest of the people in the mixer are identified and you act like you've been anonymized, in fact, you're setting up yourself up for trouble. So, I mean, uh, here I, I get a lot of people get angry because they think that I'm in support of those things. I don't support those things. I don't think, um, I, I don't think there should be a legal authority that requires everybody else to disclose information about them. I think that's just uh, doesn't make sense. So I don't think KYC is a um, legitimate thing um, as long as it's uh, mandated by force. Uh, if it's if it's voluntarily that you know you join a bank, for instance, and you decide that you want a bank that looks at everybody else's money and all of their transactions, including mine, 
and including yours and uh, you know make sure that people don't take part in any particular transactions then that's fine by me if it's voluntarily done but the current system is done um compulsively but um you know we can uh, uh, rail against it or we can just think about what the implications are and the implications are the vast majority of bitcoin at this point are uh, in hands that are um likely very easy to link to real identities i think this is something that uh, um, people just need to understand you know saying this doesn't mean you like this being the fact it means just this is the reality and there is the, there is the problem um you know there, there, there is a case to be made that this compromises bitcoin's security perhaps that and i think there is there's a good argument to be made there that if all the bitcoin's ownership are known that makes it um, more likely to compromise uh, Bitcoin, perhaps. But I think, I think the counter argument to that is that as long as Bitcoin can work, then um, this the knowledge of individuals' identities is a weakness for individuals themselves. It's a problem for you, but it's not a problem for the system. It just means somebody can take your coins, but the coins can continue to work. I I think all of that's really really interesting and insightful, and I I think the the main variable in all of that, from the victim to victimless crimes to the, to the danger of the people that are holding the Bitcoins, are all going to be determined by one thing. The, the main variable is going to be geographically, where are these people located? And if the, if the territories that they're located in protect individual freedoms, then they are going to have uh, a much better chance at not having bad things happen to them as related to their ownership of any asset, uh, especially if they're going to KYC uh, and AML their assets. The, the different, the, I guess the distinction between the distinction between victim and victimless crimes would be, and, and this is law school 30 years ago, I think. And, and I could, I could have, uh, hopefully this is an accurate depiction. You get mal. You know, there's two types of crimes. There's malum in se, and there's malum prohibitum. Malum in se crimes are crimes that are bad. They harm other individuals. Uh, they're 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 bad by nature. They're they're the natural order is is upset and people uh, are damaged individually. Malum prohibitum are crimes that are legislatively prohibited. So going over 55 miles an hour on the freeway. I mean, there's traffic, lots of traffic examples, um, you know, and, and certain other provisions. Smoking weed, drinking alcohol right. in certain places being yes. allowed, drinking yes. underage. So, right. You might be in, in Europe and some of those are allowed and then you might be in America and they're not. And so the... The, the transactions that occur as a result of the malum prohibitum uh, have different consequences and ramifications as you go from one geographic area to another. If there's enough victims harmed or any victim harmed, as you say, the, the injured parties are not going to just uh, go away, we wouldn't think. And so I think that's the, the real distinction is going to be geographic territory. And I think the, the geographic areas that provide the greatest amount of freedom to individuals 
are going to be the most supportive for the people that want to work within this network. And that's one of the reasons why we fight so hard in America to educate the legislators and representatives here on the importance of this network and that how important it is for all future financial service products, all accounting in the future, all transactions in the future. Uh, and as you said, uh, and you know, in my example, I oversimplified it, but this is going to be uh, what drives accounting globally. Uh, it's gonna be what drives all of the, the bookkeeping uh, uh, software programs that get built on top of this, along with all of the new products derivative products uh, that from every ecosystem are going to be built somehow attached to this on different layers. And so the, the geographic areas that support and embrace this technology, and, and by doing that, you're embracing human individual freedom and liberties. Uh, by doing that, the market for people that will be utilizing this network are not only within your borders, because as we talked about before, this is the first peer-to-peer -peer transaction that doesn't need a third-party verification system. So if, the, if there are entities, businesses, governments that are supportive of this technology, the market in America is not 330 million people. The market's 8 billion people. And so the governments that are realizing that now are spending lots of capital uh, building infrastructure building the next software packages that are going to help to run this and, and helping to make this uh, something that the citizens of their nations are building um, different types of added value products on. And so that's really what's, what's going to drive the next phase of this, what jurisdictions embrace it. And I think all of us are looking to find the best place to, that's gonna have the most individual liberties, that's gonna embrace this technology, that understands that this is, this is a net benefit to the world. It's a net benefit to all records. It's a net benefit to uh, transactions between two parties. And, it's, and it happens to be the worst network ever to commit a crime on. So, you know, not embracing this network within your borders is a, is a, is a very big mistake. And so it just, where, Who's going to flourish? Where, what, what geographic areas are going to flourish? And we're really all working really hard. I'm in America. I, I want to see them take this and, and embrace it and build on it. And this, this will drive the growth in America for, the, for centuries. This will be what the backbone for all financial service products, trillions of dollars of financial service products and billions of people will want to come to America to utilize these networks. This is a massive net pro, uh, net win for the geographic regions that support it. Yeah. So uh, that brings us nicely to discussing mining. Um, you've been in mining for a while, as we said earlier, it's about 10 years now. Um, so um, what are your uh, thoughts on this particular issue, on the issue of regulation of mining? Uh, where do you see this going? Do you see a serious wind in the sails of um uh, the Luddites who want to ban Bitcoin and ban Bitcoin mining and take us back to manual monetary technology. I mean, we did see something similar happen in China. China didn't ban Bitcoin completely, but they did 
shut down the majority of the mining industry, if not, I mean, the, the plan was to shut it down all. It seems increasingly like there's a significant amount of the industry that's still operating in China, but there's no denying that maybe 50% of the hash rate uh, that was in China is no longer operating, uh, or 50% of the entire hash rate, which used to be in China, is, is not operational. So they did manage to put a serious dent in the amount of uh, processing power that was in China at that time. And it slowed down the network for a few months. It didn't kill Bitcoin, but it did slow it down for four, five, six weeks or so. My question is, do you see this, uh, something similar happening in the West? Um, we hear noises in Europe and the US occasionally. Do you see this actually happening or do you think it's not? I don't think that's a tenable position here. I mm -hmm. think uh, as we educate the representatives across the United States that are elected by the citizens of whatever jurisdiction they're in, and we give them the, the actual statistics, I think they're very surprised. I think yesterday was part of what we do to educate people. And I think, unfortunately, there are, there are lots of people compete, mostly, if I had to guess, they're competing blockchain, in quotes, technologies that run proof of stake networks that are, uh, that are funding a lot of this. But I think that there are, there are representatives uh, that are, that have educated themselves on what this network is, what it provides, and then specific to mining, what the metrics are in terms of energy use and pollutants that are emitted and e-waste. I think those are the big three that everybody talks about right now. The, and what, what happened about 10 days ago was 23 Congress people sent a letter to the EPA. And the letter basically said these things, said that Bitcoin miners are uh, ecologically emitting pollutants and harming the environment. That Bitcoin miners are contributing to, you know, climate carbon release and Bitcoin miners e-waste uh, is a massive uh, tax on our landfills that, that the e-waste from mining is, uh, is disproportionate to the other types of electronics that are being discarded. And I, and I think all of those points are, <laughs> are, uh, not just disinformation, but they've been debunked as false. And so we went and we issued a letter. I don't know if you saw it. We did it yesterday morning. It's an eight page letter. We had 55 <laughs> industry signatures on it. And we went through some of the basic FUD uh, that we've been dispelling for the last 10 years. The first part was the pollution aspect. And so I think most people, you know, when me and you talk about mining and even a lot of the other topics, there are what, 100 million people in the space. How many people really granularly understand what we're talking about? Some small percentage of that. And so what I found when I talked to, uh, and, and really our goal is to bring this technology to the other 7.89 billion people that don't know that this exists and, and think of it like we thought about it or I thought about it, that it wasn't worthwhile to investigate. And so we really are trying to get the 
users to understand that the, the, there are massive benefits to this network, including you know, banking and private property rights and the ability to uh, conduct a transaction without a third party verification system, which is usually uh, somebody's government in, in a harsh environment. So the, the first metric that I really find important to let people know, because again, there's a lot of terminology that's utilized in this space that was never in the white paper. Uh, Satoshi never said it. Uh, one of those words is a miner. A Bitcoin miner, right, was never in any of the original literature. Somebody came up with it on Bitcoin talk in 2010. Very unfortunately, they called, uh, they called the equipment that's a computer server. And, and back then it was just a computer and then it was a GPU and now it's an ASIC. So we're just talking about a circuit board that takes electricity, which is a server. So we're talking about a server and they called it a Bitcoin miner. All a computer server is, okay? And so like the first thing I try to explain to these people is what a, what a Bitcoin miner is. And I say a Bitcoin miner is a computer server, just like your computer that you're watching this on. And guess how much carbon is getting emitted from your laptop right now? Nothing, no carbon's being emitted from that laptop. And no carbon's being emitted from my computer. And inside of data centers, data centers, uh, Microsoft Azure data centers and Amazon AWS data centers and Google data centers, they all host computer servers. And guess how much carbon is released inside of a Microsoft Azure data center from its computer servers? None, <laughs> zero, nothing, no, no, none. No, no carbon comes out of a computer server. So what, what data centers are, they're buildings. Okay. Yeah, so, but this is, this is where we get with like the representatives because they say Bitcoin miners emit tons of pollutants. And it's like, no, we don't. A Bitcoin mine is a data center. It's just a, a Bitcoin mining facility is a data center. A data center, okay, builds racks and you put servers in. That's the same as a Microsoft Azure data center. That's the same as an Amazon AWS data center. All data centers are the same. There are servers inside of them that run computational workloads on, server, on, on those servers. And so every server in the Microsoft data center, it's not running the same computational workload. They're all running different workloads. And guess what? Inside a Microsoft data center, some of those workloads are blockchain. And some of them are they're running the internet. Some of them are sending photos. And some of them are running hospital records. Those are computational workloads inside a server. That data center emits nothing. It plugs into the electrical grid and it buys power from the electrical grid, just like every other company. So the actual physical Bitcoin mining facility and the actual physical Microsoft Azure data center, they emit no pollutants at all, none, zero, except for maybe the waste that comes in packaging when they plug in the machines, maybe the, when they mop the floors, there's a chemical that comes out or they water the lawns, but there's nothing coming out of the servers. The servers, the servers they, they take in energy, electricity and they, and they run computational workloads. And so the letter that we responded to said, Bitcoin mining facilities are polluting the environment, which is false. 
Bitcoin mining facilities are polluting nothing. They buy electricity from the power grid and the power grid has an energy generation stream uh, source upstream, upstream from there that is generating energy and creating electricity. And that's where the pollution comes from. And so pollution, pollution comes from energy generation facilities, power plants. Power plants are regulated by the federal government, the EPA, state, local, regional ordinances, and dozens of other, uh, of other um, government, uh, government bureau bureaucratic groups that regulate those industries uh, to everything they do. And so saying that somehow Bitcoin mining facilities are polluting the environment uh, in a disproportionate, it, it really, it's, it's nonsensical. It makes no sense. And so what that, that entire long conversation is, is people conflate power generation facilities and Bitcoin mining facilities. They're not the same. A Bitcoin mining facility is literally a data center. Like the word Bitcoin mining, I'm not a fan of. I never have been. It's just a computer server. And so all we have are computer servers that are inside a data center that are running computational workloads to protect, defend, and write the transactions for the Bitcoin network. That's all this is. We're, we're a computer data center company that hosts equipment that run the Bitcoin network. And we emit no pollution. And so that's the first one. The first one is, here's what a Bitcoin mine is. Here's what a Bitcoin miner is. Here's what a Bitcoin mining facility is. And here's how much pollution it emits. And, and you cannot conflate energy generation pollution with data centers running servers. You just, you can't give those the same qualities. They're not the same thing. And if you wanna regulate the power generation facilities differently or the electrical grid differently or the transmission lines differently, the, the people within those jurisdictions, state, regional, and a uh, local level, and then the federal level, they all have plenty of arsenal. They have plenty of quivers to go after, you know, whatever it is they want to go after. So it's just very confusing to the public to say that. I don't think it's been uh, explained properly over all of these years to people what these things are. Um, and so that's the first one. The first one is data centers don't emit carbon or any other pollutants. Uh, the second one, the second one that we responded to was e-waste. And we all know where the e-waste comes from. Our, the, our, the, the DeVry's guy who has Digiconomist, you got a visceral reaction to his name. Um, he, uh, he works he, for he the Dutch Central Bank, by the way. All of this FUD is bank. from the Central Bank. Uh, it's just another shitcoiner shilling his shitcoin. Incidentally, well, all, the, all, all the environmental FUD against Bitcoin comes from shitcoins. The vast majority of it comes from shitcoins, not just the central bankers' shitcoins, but also, um, you know, the crypto <laughs> industry shitcoins who are um, always our brothers in arms whenever Bitcoin's getting attention, but always are stabbing us in the back uh, whenever they get a minute. I like the Digi economist used to be the. Did you see that he used to be the Doge economist? <laughs> did you see that? Yes, I did. Yeah, that was amazing. So, so yeah, he, he was promoting uh, Dogecoin originally, and then uh, and then the Dutch Central Bank and and I don't know what this means or not, but he went on Pomp and he said he wouldn't answer any question, and Pomp asked him if uh, Ripple was funding him, and he refused to answer. So I don't know who's funding him. Uh, I think if you're going to take a position, you should say who's funding you. Um, yeah. Especially when you're quoted that much. But so the e-waste, 
The e-waste one's ridiculous. The letter said, Syfe, 30,700 something around there. Tons of e-waste are emitted every year. So we're throwing away 30,000 tons of ASICs every single year. And they used this 1.3 year useful life of the ASIC equipment. Well, S9s were running, you know, a majority of the network for a long time. I think six months ago, was 40% or four months ago, was 40% of the network. S9s were sold starting in 2016. S9s, S9s are uh, six years old and they're trading for over $100 on the internet. And so nobody is going to throw away something that they can sell on the internet for over $100. And so no S9s are in the garbage, none. And so where is this number coming from that's so outrageous? So they're wrong on, they're wrong on the useful life, which is insanely inaccurate. 1.3 years versus going on over six years uh, for the most popular piece of equipment ever sold uh, is insanely inaccurate. And then where do you get 30,000 tons a year number from? And it's just, it, it's, you know, it, here's the problem. Guys like this guy could write that, that's fine. But for United States representatives to sign a letter saying that, you know, pushing that theory forward was really disconcerting to us. So we respond to that also, that these are wildly inaccurate claims uh, that have been debunked and it just they're patently false. They're just patently false. And so you have the e-waste. You have, so anyway, the long answer to your question on will Bitcoin mining uh, get banned in America my bet is no, no chance. And other jurisdictions across the globe are seeing the value of the network and, and are building large infrastructure projects in their regions. Uh, you're seeing countries, uh, I think we had our second country say that they're accepting Bitcoin's legal tender. You have to assume that all of the countries that, is, that see the value in this network will also mine it. And so eventually we'll have governments at scale mining Bitcoins within their borders. And all of that will help to distribute and decentralize the network and bring greater individual liberty. Because what is at the base of this network? It's individual liberty. It's the ability to con conduct a transaction outside the verification system that exists today. It's the first time anybody's held accountable for the records that they keep. I mean, imagine if we had historical records of everything that happened that can never have been changed. The world would be completely different. Uh, so this, there's just a lot of promise in this technology. You know, we're all guessing what happens in the future. And I'm not smart enough to figure out what is going to happen in the future. But what I do know is this is the most important accounting innovation in human history. It's the first immutable ledger in human history. It's the first ability for two humans to conduct a peer-to-peer -peer transaction in history. It's the first time you can look at a chain of transactions on this network publicly and have no risk of fraud on those transactions. And the digital assets that you hold in your wallet, they cannot be seized from you and they cannot be rescinded and they cannot be debased because we already know how many coins will be circulated in the entirety of the network. So there's just a lot of promise. We've never had a network like this. We've never built on top of something like this. And the smartest people in the world right now are realizing that and building on it. 
and it will continue to build. And I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future. Yeah. So here, here's a question. Now we're uh, over at this uh, podcast and seminar and website. We generally, as you may have heard, we're not very big fans of the whole uh, um, environmental hysteria movement, which wants to believe that the world is coming to an end. Now, um, I know the majority of the world goes along with this. The majority of scientists, quote unquote, um, you know, are paid to go along with the idea that human consumption of essentials uh, that we need for our survival is generating an essential trace gas that is boiling the oceans and uh, causing all kinds of crazy things. Now, I don't want to get into the debate whether this is right or wrong. I wanted to just talk briefly about the um, uh, about the strategy. So, uh, you know, you and a lot of Bitcoin miners are working on this Bitcoin uh, mining council on countering this kind of information. And so um, you gave us a pretty compelling argument for why um, the data centers are not responsible for the emissions the data centers don't do, don't actually produce any emissions, and for why the e-waste problem is ridiculously overstated. And I agree, I think, um, the, the 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 way that they calculate numbers in all of these studies, whenever you see an environmental threat and you dig a little bit under the numbers and you just see that it's somebody getting paid to make this into uh, something scary and then using their uh, skills in statistics and math and creative accounting to try and make it as scary as possible. So the e-waste problem is getting uh, overplayed. The pollution problem is getting overplayed. I wonder if the right strategy here is to quibble and to tell them, no, actually, you know, there's not that much e-waste that we're producing. And it's uh, only a fraction of what you guys say it is. Because, you know, if they manage to get you to say, if they manage to put in the number that, oh, there's this X number of tons, and you say, no, well, actually, it's only a fifth of that. Well, a fifth of that number is still pretty large. And... Uh, you know, with time, Bitcoin is only going to produce more e-waste and will most likely consume more and more energy. So is this quibbling um, the right strategy or should we just reject the entire premise? Does the Bitcoin mining industry need to accept the premise that um, electricity is bad? I mean, why don't they actually just go out on the offensive and say, yeah, we consume a lot of electricity because electricity is a good thing. Electricity is what allows us to master our environment electricity is why children are able to survive the winter uh, why babies don't die when they're born it's why we have incubators that can keep premature babies alive it's how we've conquered the darkness it's how we've conquered disease we're 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 aligned on on uh the importance of energy right energy has has created um the best conditions for human for humans to live you know, in the history of humanity. Uh, What we're dealing with really is there's lots of, you know, look, people that gravitated towards this industry are uh, very individualistic. And so everybody has a way that they like to, to argue certain positions. Uh, When you frame, when you frame this, when you frame this question properly, the, the answer is much different than what everybody thinks it is. And so I find that with the regulators that are going to actually make the decisions and the citizens that are voting these representatives in, giving them some framework to understand the metrics is important. Just like explaining what a Bitcoin mine is, 
and what a Bitcoin miner is and what an ASIC is and what actually comes out of a data center. I find that if you give people enough information, they're going to get to the right decision. It just takes, you have to lead them there. And so the two biggest arguments that always come up, and the first one's the easiest one to, to explain if they want to come and listen open-minded. And what they say is the Bitcoin global network uses more energy. And I know you've heard me say this 8,000 times, but the Bitcoin global network uses more energy than a small country, right? The Netherlands, New Zealand, you know, whatever. Uh, and so the problem is, the problem on that analogy is there's no frame. You don't know how much energy a small country uses. You don't know if they have a manufacturing base. You don't know if they use any kind of meaningful amount of energy. And so you have to measure it against something. You can't just look at one number. It means nothing. You have to frame it. It's like saying the star is big. Well, the star is big. You know, our, our sun, our sun, the star in our solar system is big. Well, compared to what? Compared to the entire universe? Maybe not. But compared to other suns or compared to the earth? Maybe so. And so you have to compare it with something. Otherwise, there's no frame of reference. And so people say the Bitcoin global network uses more energy than, than a country. And so you have to, the metric that's the most important metric for our industry is how much, okay, that's great. That, that's how much energy a country uses. How much energy is generated globally on an annualized basis? Because without knowing that number, you have no idea if that country uses a lot of energy or not. And so the most important number in our industry for representatives to understand or citizens that are, that are voting on elected officials to understand is how much energy is available globally that on an annual basis, how much is generated? And we know that number, British Petroleum, Exxon, they all put out how much energy is available globally every year. And that number is approximately 160,000 terawatt hours of energy is available on an annualized basis every year, right around that number, 160,000 terawatt hours. The World Economic Forum and Newsweek in 2017, both came out coincidentally with articles that said the same thing. They said this, they said the Bitcoin global network is so bad for the planet we need to shut it down right now. If it's not shut down in three years, by 2020, in 2020, the Bitcoin global network will consume, and they literally said this, all of the world's energy, all of it. And so that's insane. And if and if you read that and the World Economic Forum is somebody that you trust and they have a big footprint globally, you're like, wow, that's terrible. And Newsweek has a big audience, too. And then thousand other papers and, and, and websites picked up this information. They all ran with it. I was building our first facility in North Carolina, and I had to respond to this in 2017. And so I've been talking about the energy footprint for a long time. And what people didn't understand was how much energy there is globally and, and then how much energy the network uses. Well, I just told you how much energy is generated globally that's available for humans to use. I just told you the World Economic Forum said the Bitcoin network would use all of it by 2020, which was two years ago. 
obviously that's wrong, right? Because we're using energy right now. Uh, the Bitcoin network didn't you know, create an Armageddon scenario on the planet. But how close were they? Was the World Economic Forum and were new, was, was Newsweek, were they close in predicting how much energy would be used by this network? Well, the answer to how much energy this network uses is easy to find out because of the hash rate and the equipment and the, and the, and the, and the, uh, and the players in the space. And so we know even the detractors of this industry know today approximately how much energy this network using. And it's somewhere around 250 terawatt hours of energy a year of the 160,000 terawatt hours of energy that's generated every year. It's a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the global energy generation. That makes Newsweek and the World Economic Forum in 2022, two years after they said we would be using all of the energy over 99% wrong, over 99% wrong. And so the representatives that I talked to, they don't know this. They think the World Economic Forum's predictions are accurate and we're using a massive amount of energy when, and you could look up and you mentioned the Bitcoin Mining Council, we put out quarterly results of how much energy is generated globally and how much energy is used by this network. That's our most important metric. And we use 16 basis points of the world's energy. That's 16 one hundredths of a percent of the world's energy is used by this network. And so when representatives hear that, it changes the conversation because they're rat most of them, 99% are rational human beings. And so when they understand that they've been fed misinformation, it makes, our, it makes their knowledge of the industry better. It makes their decision-making process more accurate. It allows them to then talk to their constituents and other representatives and legislators in a, a much more reasonable manner. I could either do that or I could tell them to go fuck themselves and I choose to educate them. And so that's the way I've decided to handle it. And it's generally worked pretty well. I haven't met anybody yet ever who is an elected official uh, is not open to understanding what this network actually uses in terms of energy. And yeah. so and then when you look at the carbon footprint, which we also break down on the Bitcoin Mining Council, it's eight basis points, which is eight one hundredths of a percent of the world's carbon emissions. And so if you shut the entire network off, it would have an inconsequential effect on anything in the world. And we talked about environmental damage. Well, Scythe, I don't think either of us believe that there's not massive criminal environmental damage caused every single year. One of the worst things that's ever been done is leaded gasoline, right? They burned leaded gasoline for 50 years and killed tens of millions of people. I think something like half or a third or 20%, I, I couldn't tell you his actual statistic, but millions of children today have lethal amounts of lead in their bodies. Stopping lead pollution globally is a massive problem and something that's super important. Stopping poison, pesticides, all types of manufacturing runoff from getting into streams and lakes 
That's important on environmental to stop. Stopping poisons from getting in the air and our waterways. Those are really bad environmental problems that we need people to be cognizant of and go out and stop. Bitcoin mining using 16 basis points of the energy on the planet Earth is not an environmental problem. There's super uh, complicated, very hard, very dangerous problems globally that disproportionately affect third world countries and, and really poor people. That's what people should be focused on. I think, I think this is... I, I think this is really the key point that needs to be um, emphasized, which is it's a cost-benefit analysis. Like everything that any human being ever does, you need to think about the costs and the benefits, and not just the costs and the benefits, you need to compare it to the alternative. And so the reason I, I, I think it might be counterproductive, all right, so here's, here's how it goes. When you tell people that it's only 0.1%, they think 0.1% is a very small number, and so then that makes them think, oh, well, Bitcoin isn't that bad. I think the reality, though, that's just their kind of mathematical way of thinking of it. But the reality is 0.1% of the world's energy consumption is an enormous number. I mean, it's huge. Like we have steel industries and we have the cement industry and we have all these massive factories all over the world. And all of that is, you know, all of the planet, seven and a half billion people, almost eight billion people, everything that they do is only 1,000 fold larger than Bitcoin. So it's actually a lot because one out of a thousand, that's, you know, that's about the average, that's an average consumption of 8 million people. So that's 8 million average human beings uh, consumption. That is quite a lot. And it is quite a lot when compared to the alternative. If you thought of the alternative as being, well, we just have a central bank and they meet together and they decide how much money we need and what the interest rate is. And those guys consume a lot more energy. It takes about 2,000 calories a day to feed a central banker. That's a lot less energy than uh, Bitcoin. Wise. So there's really no comparison. And, and, and some people like to compare Bitcoin to banking infrastructure. And I don't think that's a like-to-like -like comparison because... Bitcoin doesn't exactly obsolete a lot of banking uh, functions. And what Bitcoin is really changing is the underlying infrastructure behind the money. And in that case, we could either have 12 guys in a room with their assistants and their um, computers, or we have the giant Bitcoin distributed network. So I think there's no escaping the fact that Bitcoin does consume a lot of electricity, but I think it is worth it. And I think that that would be the uh, <laughs> the, the, the focus I, of I my messaging. You, yeah, I think me and you uh, agree on most things. We do not agree on this. I do not think that's a lot of energy. Uh, and there are examples of that. And the examples are this. The tumble dryers in America use more energy than the big global Bitcoin network. Tumble dryers. I doubt uh, that's accurate. Uh, well, it's in the NIDIG. Nick Carter, Ross Stevens paper, uh, you can check it. Uh, Christmas lights, and they're also uh, referenced in the world in the uh, Bitcoin Mining Council information packets. Uh, Christmas lights are on par with how much energy is used by the Bitcoin mining network globally. Uh, the other statistic I love, Saif, is this: in America, okay, in America, we take ten thousand. 800 terawatt hours of energy every year to create all the electricity on our electrical grid. So the electricity in America comes from 10,800 terawatt hours of energy, right? You take the energy to create electricity. The electricity then 
gets disseminated from transmission lines to every user in America, right? So like everything you're doing in Austin right now is utilizing that 10,800 terawatt hours of energy turned into electricity flowing into your microphone and your laptop. Of that 10,800 terawatt hours of energy that generates the electricity every year, 6,800 watts are wasted. They're wasted. They're gone. The Bitcoin network is 250 terawatt hours of energy. You can run something like 30 global Bitcoin networks on the energy that's wasted in America. Okay. Yeah. And so that's just America's wasted energy. Globally, we waste 50,000 terawatt hours of energy on a global basis. So you can look at the wasted energy and say, we're already wasting this much energy. It utilizing it for this doesn't, doesn't use a massive amount. It just, it's just not, it's not, a, it's not an intense use of energy on a global basis. On a global basis, it's not an intense use of energy. On a, so, but on a regional or local level, it is a large use of energy because you have to make sure that there's enough energy generation in the locations that you build a Bitcoin mine facility, similar to how you have to make sure there's enough energy if you're building an Amazon or a Microsoft data center that uses energy. You wanna make sure you're not straining the transmission grids, that there's substations, that there's enough energy generation for the population, for the citizens there and for the industries there. And that's why Bitcoin miners locate outside dense population areas yep. where there's stranded renewable energies or there's excess energies. And so you're seeing there's energy on the globe is plentiful. Exactly. Right? There's no shortage of energy. It's just harnessing that energy. And so energy is everywhere. There is no shortage of it. And so the Bitcoin miners are not using on a, and this is where it gets people can they conflate this globally we're not using a lot of the world's energy uh, other industries manufacturing automobile transportation when they estimate how much energy they use on a global basis they round it off by one or two percent right so our use of energy is a rounding error to other large industries we're rounding error. We're an inconsequential amount of the global energy use. But if you build a Bitcoin mining facility, a data center in a region that doesn't have significant power generation uh, resources, then you're going to commit a problem for the people that are on that electrical grid and you shouldn't locate there. And so what you see is you see people want to get into this industry. And they go to places that either A, don't have the existing infrastructure to support them on a local or regional level, or that don't want them there. There are some regions that just don't want Bitcoin miners to, to open shop there. Well, guess what? You shouldn't go there. There's lots of places to go. You, you know, if a community doesn't want you, you shouldn't, you know, make, make it uh, uh, an unhealthy business environment. You want to go somewhere else. There's lots of states in America that are... Uh, that are actively encouraging people that want to be in this industry to come to their borders. Like, why would you go to a place that doesn't want you? And so we see the uh, consequences of that. We've looked at, I've looked at hundreds of sites, site, uh, most, most of them want us there. And so we look at the different models to how we would build there. Some of them don't. And so if the citizens and the elected officials 
they don't want us within their borders, we'll go somewhere else. I think it is a lot of energy, but I think that's what energy is for. We want to consume energy. But the other thing is that it's a lot of energy, but it can't, by the way that Bitcoin works, it can't be energy that comes, um, that, that competes with people's consumption because people will always outbid the Bitcoin network for energy. This is, I think, the key point that gets lost in the signaling, in, in the messaging, which is that- If there's a remote energy, to that, to that statistic, if there's a remote energy generation facility and we open a Bitcoin data center, a mining data center there, and power's three cents, they have a certain amount of energy that's available. And then residential uh, neighborhoods start popping up around us, right? Like we, let's say we employ 500 people to build it out and hundreds of people work in variety of ways with the, with the new data center we created and a town of 50,000 people sprout up and they're all vying for the same energy. Well, commercial and residential rates are gonna go 11 to 18 cents a kilowatt hour and we need to pay three cents. And so yeah. if they're selling all this energy for 11, 18 cents, they're gonna price us out of the market and we're going to go somewhere else. And so we're not going to compete on a residential industrial uh, price mechanism level. This is the key thing that gets lost. I think this is the most ridiculous thing. Well, the most ridiculous thing about the hysterics and the anti-Bitcoiners is the fact that they think carbon dioxide is boiling oceans. The second ridiculous thing is that they think energy is like this cake. You know, we, we're sitting here and mom baked us a cake and we're all kids and we're fighting over who gets the biggest chunk of the cake. And if you ate a bigger chunk of the cake, that necessarily means I'm going to have a smaller chunk of the cake. And they think that's what the global energy market is. Like we wake up in the morning, every morning, and I don't know, the president of the U.S. or the chairman of the United Nations or something um, gets up and decides, all right, you get to do this. You get this much energy for driving. You get that much energy for your aluminum uh, smelter. And that's how it gets allocated. But the reality is, Energy is produced. People produce their own energy. They make energy. And there's no limit on how much energy we can make. There's no limit on how much energy there is on Earth. The sun strikes the Earth every day with more energy than humans consume in a year. Nuclear energy, fossil fuels underground, they contain many, 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 many thousands of the multiples of the energy that we need every day. So it's not a scarcity of energy. The scarcity is in the power. It's an energy per second at the time and the place that we wanted. You the want it's the infrastructure to get it. Yeah, you want the energy you want the energy in your car so that when you click when you when you flick this the key, the car goes. You want the energy in your related to the house, linked to the house so that when you turn on the dryer or the washer or the TV or the fridge, they work 24/7 and they're reliable. That's the scarce thing. And that can be infinitely produced. We produce more and more of it and that Bitcoin doesn't compete with anything for which there is a close use for the energy, um, for which there is a valuable use for the energy because, again, commercial, the, the average electricity price in the world is about 14 cents. If you want it to be profitable mining Bitcoin, you can't do it at 14 cents. You can't even really do it at 10 cents. In order to be profitable, you need, in order to be reliably profitable, if you want to build a serious business, if you don't want to take risks, if you don't want to go out of business during the times when the difficulty spikes up or the price crashes, you need to have something like six cents per kilowatt hour, probably less. You know, the most competitive miners have something like two, three cents per hour per kilowatt hour. And that's only available in places where people aren't competing for that energy. People have an excess of it. If you had hospitals and children and schools 
and uh, nice things there that needed that energy, they'd be willing to pay much more than just the two, three cents that Bitcoin needs. So Bitcoin mining on its own ends up going to places where it doesn't compete for the production. And so it's not taken away from the cake of the fixed amount of energy that gets assigned to us it's every day. More, it's better than that. It's, it's creating more, more because cake. now we're subsidizing the growth of energy generation in remote exactly. areas, right? And so and that, and by the way, on a renewable footprint, okay? We like renewable footprints for uh, for our industry, and this is why. It's the least expensive. You wanna know why renewables are the least expensive? They don't deplete. You don't, you don't need a resource for sun. It's just, you have to harness it and send it out. And so we like renewable resources because economically they're the least expensive. And, and so as Bitcoin miners move to more remote regions, we're subsidizing the growth of the renewable energy generation business as a private company. And we're the only private company doing that right now. There is no other industry. There's no other private industry subsidizing the growth towards renewable energies. And, and I don't think anybody disagrees. In 100 years, in 200 years, you will be able to harness all the renewable energies you ever need to power everything. It's just the technology is not there yet to do it at scale. And so, you know, the, there are a lot of really important things that are happening on what Bitcoin miners are doing. We're stabilizing the grids. We're subsidizing the growth of renewable energy. We'll, you know, core scientific, we'll curtail our power for emergency events or controlled load events. And we, and we put out press releases on that um, all the time. Yeah, well, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you. I don't think, I don't think we're going to transition to renewable energy. I think renewable energy. Well, the sun is not uh, going to be depleted, but you know, the solar panels need to be manufactured, and they probably consume more hydrocarbon energy to manufacture the solar panel than you'll yeah, get we, we out of it. it like that. In two hundred years, it's just like looking at you know computers. You know. Yeah, but you know, steam. Uh, I mean, the internal combustion engine is also going to get more efficient over the next two hundred years. Um, the solar panels aren't going to catch up. We're not going to. Uh, I think there's serious engineering here, and I think. Um, and, and this kind of virtue signaling about renewable energy, you know, there's no such thing as renewable energy. And, 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 that, um, and the virtue signaling about it being uh, necessary and that Bitcoin moves us to it is kind of what worries me. But anyways, we have a whole bunch of questions from the other attendees in the seminar. Um, Nathan, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I, uh, I agree with the sentiment on, on Bitcoin's impact on business, uh, uh, your, your comments about accounting make that more specific, which is really interesting. I've had a, a question that kind of comes at that from a different angle. I've looked at, uh, I, I'm a career IT consultant, so I've worked with a million databases over the years. And Looking at blockchain outside of Bitcoin, I can find no use for blockchain. None. I, I still can't come up with a reason why I would do that. If it's private, then it's mutable. I, where do you go with that? I just wonder if you had any comment on that. Listen, you, listen when I looked at this network in 11, uh, I said... 
this is the best accounting technology that's ever been created on a, on, because of fraud. And listen, as a business owner, my problems are always fraud and immutability. And as a, I own an investment banking company and everything we see, all the numbers uh, usually don't correlate to reality. So having immutable records to me in business is massively important. Now, how this plays out with folks like you, data center guys, and, and I, you know, people that work in the industry or people that put together accounting software packages for individualized, uh, individualized businesses, I, that's not my area of expertise. Like I, I looked at this technology and said, you know what? This is the biggest innovation accounting in human history. This is the first time we've had all of these technologies together. And my guess was, and I was wrong, my guess was the accounting implications of this network. And, and I, was, I was, you know, involved in Bitcoin was at $20. Uh, I said the accounting implications, those will grow faster than the monetary implications of the digital commodity that trades on these rails. And I was wrong. I was wrong. I've said that many times. I think that the accounting implications are not obvious yet. I think people haven't built them yet. I think in 20, 30 plus years or whenever somebody figures it out, there's going to be a QuickBooks for, you know, time chains. That's going to, that's going to, you know, be the new de facto way that you do your accounting. Uh, accounting's broken. The accounting system's bad. The way that every business conducts uh, their records and what I see every on a daily basis for my companies is is not it's it it's not great technology and people have tried to to make it great and they have it. and so my guess is this will apply to not just you know businesses but to how databases run uh, but that's not my I'm not I'm not a technologist I'm just an accountant lawyer guy I. I see the importance of it. And, and I, if I would, I'd be shocked if people don't figure out a way to apply this to, to those industries that require that much data and corrupt. The biggest problem you have is corrupt data or somebody making a change to the data that wasn't supposed to make a change to the data. So data, I mean, the most important thing in the world is data, the information. The information and data. If you if you can't trust the data, you have nothing. And so it seemed to me that this network solved that problem. And so yeah, maybe today there is no widespread use of it. And I agree with you. And I've said like, how come these accounting firms or how come people that are really good entrepreneurs in the digital information space haven't figured out how to utilize this in their areas yet? And it hasn't happened. But it is the best way to save information that's ever been created. So, you know, right now, today, as it stands, I agree with you. I don't see a uh, commercial application uh, outside of the monetary technology. I, I guessed it would have been the other round. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I think, uh, I think things like strike Jack Mallers. I think that's where you're going to see the acid of blockchain creeping into business. Uh, but, but seeing someone create a blockchain on its own outside of links, layered links to Bitcoin, it seems pointless. I mean, 
look at Ethereum. We have no, no, no idea. I'm not, saying, I'm not. I'm saying they're connected into it. No, no. I'm not saying someone's going to create a competitor to Bitcoin. Yeah, and that's my that's my point. Answering uh, that question illustrates the fact that any kind of solution is going to have roots in Bitcoin. Right. That, that's what I would, if I was unclear about that, then, then that was my bad on communicating it. All of what I'm talking about will be within Bitcoin. That yeah. this net, you won't be able to create this immutable network in any other fashion. So all of what I'm talking about is within the Bitcoin rails. Very good. That, I just wanted to make sure I was hearing that. Thanks. Yeah, that's, that's what it was. But within the Bitcoin rails, as you said, Lightning is a, a great product. I think that's, you're going to see these layer two and side chain and all these things, and they're going to live on Bitcoin and all of the other products that are created anywhere else eventually will want to live on Bitcoin too, because that's the only immutable record. Yeah. All right, Daniel, you got a question? Yeah. Hey, how you doing, Darren? Um, great. Um, great, great to listen in on this. Thank you guys. Uh, Darren, as uh, a mining guru that you are, uh, we're seeing on Twitter, at least, uh, and in the community, a big pickup in the home mining um, kind of arena, if you will. Do you have any tips for the plebs out there that are entering into Bitcoin mining for the first time? What should they be looking out for? Uh, you know, I, Listen, the home mining products are amazing. Uh, I watched an amazing video with my son. Uh, his name's Burn the Bridge. Let me find this. He's got a product, Burn the Bridge, Econo Alchemist. Uh, he's got some amazing stuff. Um, and so, you know, I'm a big fan of what he's putting together. Uh, you have, you know, some of, some of these other folks that are creating, uh, that are engineers like Steve Barbour is creating amazing products. And, and some of these other uh, really, really creative uh, highly intelligent people are creating amazing home uh, mining products. I think that the growth of that is amazing for the network and that will uh, transcend uh, from America to everywhere else and help also to distribute and decentralize the network. So we're, we're, we're big proponents of that. I, I like to see it. Fantastic. All right. Um, we've got another question from uh, Victoria. Hi, um, Darren, thank you so much. This has been great. Um, I actually, I am actually very excited. I'm really glad to hear what you have to say because I think that there's so much uh, potential for blockchain um, from accounting. And actually, and, and like you, my background is in um, fraud and money laundering. So my question for you is for, I too, they're closely related. Um, do you see, there to be a time in the business community where um, transparency and business practices, transparency of what is going on and an immutable accounting practice that is publicly available is not only going to be considered a standard and potentially like it would be, you could make it your competitive advantage to focus on that. And then just as the second one, as far as KYC, do you see there being, um, I see that it's possible because of what you and SAFE were talking about, um, to be able to actually eliminate KYC. And now this isn't not today, but at some point be able to instead, those of us, either as an entity or an individual, um, be able to do business as a cryptographic address 
with a history that is publicly available as far as and our um, the type of our the, the and all of our interactions with other cryptographic addresses will actually be superior to and be able to replace um, KYC. Um, so what do you think? Thanks for the questions, Victoria. They, uh, the first one I can answer. The second one, I'm not technologically sophisticated enough. I can give you uh, my best guess on it. Um, but the, the first question was, uh, the second one was, uh, st I'm still thinking about it. Um, the, the accounting implications as it applies to, uh, what it was, what was it again? It was the as far as transparency in business practices oh, yeah. so, okay. so, yeah. or so, your accounting system. Yeah. So, yeah. So as accounting, as it applies to the to the, to the um, public aspect of looking at the records, if you're going to invest in a company as a shareholder, at some point in the future, you're going to want to have the records available to you publicly 24 hours a day. The, the Bitcoin network runs 24 seven. The NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, right? They run six days a week or five days a week now. They used to run six and, they, and they're very limited hours. And so you have an inefficient market in terms of information flow. And so at some point in time, if I had to guess what shareholders would want on a private company would be the ability to access that information anytime they want without having to request it from a third party. So right now, if we were in, if we were in a litigation uh, event with some other party, you have to hire lawyers to request the documents. But if the documents were all available publicly online, you could everybody could search it or to see what the revenue was on a daily basis. Maybe you want to see that. Uh, for Core Scientific, to that to that effect, uh, we wanted to show our revenue every day, every day, and so every day we we post how many bitcoins we mined on the Twitter. And so you could see how many my, how many Bitcoins uh, the core scientific, the company I founded, uh, co-founded with Mike Levitt, who's our CEO, uh, how many Bitcoins we've mined every day, which is really cool. But yeah, no, to your, to your, to your point, I think the, the transparent aspect of this will become uh, added value service that uh, you could provide in your company or you would look for as a, as an investor in another company. So yeah, absolutely. That that's the way it goes. And then on the, the second question, I don't know. I think my answer to that is just geographic areas. Like you, you're going to be subject to the rule of law within the jurisdiction that you're in. And if they're not friendly to uh, the cryptographic uh, uh, method then you're not going to be able to do it there. And so you're just going to have to comply with the geographic laws within your region. And you're going to want to, you're going to want to promote uh, individual liberties, uh, the protection of indiv individual liberties within those borders. So that, so. You know, and actually, yes, um, my, but I guess my, my question now just um, really is I, you know, the, um, not so much like what we as an individual or as an entity would have to provide for KYC, but more so um, instead of that, it would be and understand on region. And I understand that you made that point, um, and that was that stuck with me that um, that because it, it wouldn't be more so 
you talk about tools like chain analysis and such where you can pull up you've got all that data available and then there could be like a database like a way to be able to um constantly aggregate that data so that um anyone you know so that anyone would be able to to evaluate any an individual or anyone making transactions based on their cryptographic address it's just a thought i didn't know if that was something that maybe that you all i you know that's too technical for me yeah it just it's, it's the first time i thought about it so but you guys brought it up what y'all what you all were talking about sife's too smart for me i <laughs> i have a very cursory technological background um all, the the amazing part to this was the ledgers and and you know being in forensic accounting which sounds like if you're looking at uh uh, lots of illicit activity and, and, and laundering, you know, your everything you do is a forensic account, uh, forensic audit of that account. And so like, that's the, that part is, is the quantifiable, um, technological, uh, forward looking steps that are going to be, uh, discovered over, you know, multiple business cycles by really smart entrepreneurs that are going to say, this is the best ledger that's ever been invented here's these public ways we could follow this down into uh, a viable business product thank you all right um i've got a question from peter peter do you want to take the uh, ask uh, darren hi darren my question was about the history of accounting that you gave at the beginning because i think the history of accounting is a very important part of the history of economics and economic development. And you said that double entry accounting systems haven't changed for some 700 years. And I'd read a bit on your Twitter and some of the writings that you put out about this uh, kind of history of accounting. And I was just wondering how you became educated in this topic and whether you have any resources that you'd recommend to those of us that are looking to learn more about it? For example, recommended books or documentaries, articles, things like that? Is, that's a great, great question, Peter. So uh, when I, I, I don't know how many years ago this was, uh, I bought all the accounting history books that I could buy and they're just completely dense. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I don't know that I would recommend any of them. They were just, uh, the, the online resources I feel exceeded the books that I bought and they're around my desk somewhere uh, in, in piles. But uh, I think online, you're really going to get the best explanation of double to triple did triple uh, triple ledger uh, technology advancement. And you're going to see a lot of the uh, double entry uh, accounting history is really, you know, they, they talk about, uh, Luca Pacioli and the, and the Medici's and, and they, and, and it's really just, uh, there are some textbooks that were issued between 13 and 1400s. I think the first record in a textbook was this Lucas Pacioli that people collect. It's a collector's, uh, people, people, um, have them in museums. Uh, and so there's, there's a, there's a vibrant history on it and there's, there's some literature on it. Um, but for practical purposes, you can learn all of this on the internet. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say go buy these three books. Like if somebody wants to learn about Bitcoin, I tell them to go buy Safe's book. 
right? I'm like, go buy the Bitcoin standard. You'll learn everything you need to do. There isn't one of these on accounting. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I know why. I know why there's not a lot of books because it's a really boring topic. And I, I do an accounting speech that's all accounting. Uh, it's about 90 minutes. And after 15 minutes, I look out into the crowd and half of them have their eyes rolled back into their brains, like wondering why they came. And so nobody wants to read about accounting. Uh, accounting runs the world. It's the rails everything runs on, but nobody wants to hear about it. It's a really, it's, a, it's really, it's really, um, uh, it's, it's, it's unsettling to me, but uh, nobody cares about it. And so there's not a lot of books on, I'm sure they're books. They just, they just never made it. Um, so it's, it's definitely some, the people need to put this out there more often. Um, and, you know, I like that you honed in on it. I mean, it is, it is insane that every single government bank and corporation on the planet earth today, all of them use double entry account, all of them, and it was created 700 years ago. So, um, and it's a really bad technology. You can change everything. So that's, Hopefully that was helpful. All right. Uh, last question comes from Mike. Hey, thank you so much, Darren. This is awesome. I, I want to just also mention that during this presentation, I resurrected six S9s from non-functional to functional. So they'll, they'll yeah. be back uh, hashing soon. Um, but the question I had for you, and I guess it kind of starts with a, a little bit of experience that I had. I, I started a mining company, not at the same time you did in 2015, late 2015. Um, and unfortunately had to wind it down um, after the boom bust cycle of 1718 on account of the folks that were financing it, not being happy about the situation. Uh, I managed to kind of string it along until the end of um, 2018 and then had to tear it all apart. And I guess the question I'd have for you, since you have so much experience in the space is what advice would you give to someone who, you know, has the ambition to go out and do that um, today? Uh, you know, I can give all sorts of advice about what not to do, uh, but you've got the other side of the, the spectrum of, of having success there. And I think that's important for folks to hear because it, I believe we could use more folks trying to get into that as well as mining at home. But you know, entering the space as a on or off grid miner? Yeah, no, great question. Good business uh, topic. Um, I failed a dozen times before I succeeded in this space. And I've, and I failed hundreds of times in all of my other endeavors. Uh, failure is just a part of the process. So it's not, you haven't, you, didn't, you haven't failed if you, if you, if you haven't given up. So um, you could, you could, you could, uh, you could move on from a company, a company could end, but your knowledge, right? You have your, the knowledge that you acquired putting that company together is more knowledge than other people have that are getting into business now. So you have this advantage where you have a knowledge base that exceeds the other competitors that are just starting out from scratch. And so you're going to make, you're going to make less mistakes on your next version of it. And so part of, part of succeeding in business is, is being unafraid of constant failure. You're just going to, you have to accept the fact that nothing's going to work the first time or the second time or the 10th time. Uh, it's just, you have to just, you have to be, uh, you, you have to continuously 
run through every single barrier and wall that comes in front of you. It's very, very difficult to succeed. It's very easy to, to, to fail. And so a lot of times people fail and then they stop. Uh, you have to fail and then you have to learn from it and you have to continue on. Um, there's some great motivational quotes that go to something like the effect of if, if you show me somebody who said they succeeded and can't talk about 10 times that they failed, then they didn't invent it. And so it's, it's, uh, it's just a constant, you're just always changing how you approach the different variables and, and you had a financial issue. Those are, those come up all the time. Uh, those are, those are uh, issues that, that you just have to find different angles for in every business. I mean, most founders of companies run out of money dozens of times before they get to a place where, where that, that isn't a problem. And, and most companies that's never not a problem. They're always constantly running out of product, out of money. So on a business aspect, it's, it's not a failure if you, if you learn from it and, and create something else, utilizing the ashes of what burned down. And, and, uh, and that, that could be the foundation for what you do next. Thank you. Okay. Well, Thank you so much, everybody, for attending. And thank you especially to Darren for your time and all of your fascinating ideas and uh, great insight on this topic. I'm sure we'll be having you over more and more to talk about uh, this mining and all kinds of other interesting things in the wide world of Bitcoin. Thank you, everybody, again. Thank you, buddy. Cheers. Take care.